Motherhood is Murder contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Well, hello and welcome to episode 17 of Motherhood is Murder. My name is Valerie Kachin and we are in vacation season, summertime, school is out. It is getting very muggy here in New England. We have had periods of rain every day. And so that mixed with, it's not super hot, it's like 80, 82 degrees right now, but the water and the rain and the thunderstorms, it's just making things very muggy. So if you watch this on YouTube and I have like a shine on my face, trust me, I record very early in the morning and I'm still like a little shiny. So that's the way it goes. Last night, um, you know, there was a thunderstorm and I had gone out to get a couple of things to make dinner and apparently a lightning bolt hit something right across the street from us. We live in a, like a small little cul-de-sac. And uh, we lost Wi-Fi, internet, all that good stuff for the evening. So I had planned to record last night. So we're going off to vacation today. And uh, but I'm recording this morning instead. So kind of doing a jam session here for you <laughs> to get this out to you. And uh, I hope you are enjoying your summer or what might feel like the beginning of summer for you and um, looking forward to the next couple months ahead. So this week, we will wrap up our month on captivity by exploring the psychological effects of captivity and relate these to the cases we reviewed this month. As you can imagine, this is an incredibly broad topic and one that is covered for like entire semesters in college. So I will be only covering a small portion. You can certainly dive in deeper with the sources I share or by discovering a number of books published on the topic. I would like to remind everyone that captivity includes prisoners of war, concentration camp victims, prisoners, domestic abuse victims, kidnapping, human trafficking victims, as well as psychological states that keep a person feeling captive and substance abuse disorders. Both humans and animals can experience profound effects during captivity. And this month, the bonus episode will be on animal captivity. So if you are on Patreon with me, you'll get to see that. So join me for the bonus episode. And then if you're not on Patreon, please join us on Patreon. You're supporting the show and you get a bonus episode each month and you'll get a shout out and all that great and amazing stuff. So please plan this time around, and I'll remind you at the end of the show as well, this time around, the bonus episode will post around July 1st. All right. So let's get into this, uh, the psychology of captivity. And like I just said, I mean, this is, I can't really cover it or do it really any justice, right? But I will uh, provide some information on psychological effects, uh, very little information on perpetrators because we've already covered that in another episode. Uh, so uh, just, just bear with me, especially if you've studied this extensively as a psychologist, you're going to know a heck of a lot more than I have to share. But if you're just a common 
average person just interested in this type of behavior, maybe you'll learn a thing or two. Psychological effects of being held captive can involve mental, cognitive, emotional, and social effects. These are not limited to the time in captivity alone, but can branch out beyond the time of captivity as the captive reintegrates back into daily society. A victim can experience overwhelming sensory overload upon returning home. It can be assumed that the basics aspects of life, such as food, warmth, sleep, fresh air, and exercise may not have been provided to someone kept captive. When these are once again provided, the receipt of love, kindness, and support can be a lot for a victim of captivity to process. Both psychological and physical torture are co-measured when considering damage to an individual during a time of captivity. Cognitive effects such as memory and concentration, emotional effects such as helplessness and hopelessness, and social effects such as withdrawal and irritability are often reported. Left untreated, these conditions can result in permanent personality changes. It is relatively easy to understand why when physical freedom is taken from an individual that there would be a reaction, but is there more to it? And the answer is yes. Perception of control is an adaptive quality of survival. Infants show a preference for control and aversion to removing that control before autonomy is realized. Some psychologists have asked if control is biologically motivated. In one source, overall well-being strongly associates with control. So therefore, your sense of well-being, whether or not you feel well, is associated with whether or not you feel control over your environment and over your situation. So a quote here, belief in one's ability to exert control over one's environment to produce desired results is essential to one's overall well-being. So let's for a moment revisit the effects of captivity on humans as determined once the individual is returned back to their homes. Self-destructive activities such as eating disorders and substance abuse can be apparent upon release. Violence against others, avoidance, blaming, and catastrophizing, learned helplessness, and hypervigilance can also result. PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is a diagnosis for anyone who has been abducted and experiences persistent psychological distress. This disorder can last months or years affecting all relationships. And just to be clear here too, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, isn't just related to abductions, any really extremely traumatic or stressful situation could bring that up. So there is a light at the end for those who seek additional outlets of support. Growth and resilience can follow, especially for those who receive counseling, receive encouragement of self-expression, and have been given time to heal. A focus on mental resilience versus victimhood helps considerably in recovery. In 1992, Judith Herman released a book entitled Trauma and Recovery, the Aftermath of Violence, focusing on trauma and recovery. She studied the psychological effects of trauma from domestic abuse situations to situations of political terror. In domestic abuse situations, Judith 
Judith noted that the effects of the abuser can create a form of brainwashing. Situations of severe abuse also include keeping a victim hostage and controlling all aspects of the victim's world, including sleep-wake cycle, diet, physical safety, and access to others. The victim loses their sense of self-worth and their confidence in controlling their environment is shattered. The abuser is their only thread to what is, quote, real for the victim. And since the abuser's view of reality is often skewed, the victim has a tenuous place to land. When the abuser forces a victim to betray their own moral values, perhaps forcing them to endure emotionally disturbing sexual behavior or to participate in the abuse of others, effects are incredibly destructive. Herman also made it clear that no one is immune to this type of breaking down. Those with a history of child abuse or domestic violence are more vulnerable, but anyone could succumb. Young people and those with psychological problems are even more vulnerable. So back a few episodes, we discussed kidnapping and profiling a kidnapper. So I don't want to spend too much time on the psychology here, but I do want to review a few key elements that might be helpful to those of you who have not listened to the kidnapping episode. And if you if you have not, go back because there's some really great information there about how our society perceives kidnapping and the profile of a kidnapper. But I'll cover a couple of things here. So motivations for kidnapping or taking someone into captivity can range from money, political, and sexual. In the cases we covered this month, Abby Hernandez would have been a sexually motivated crime. Hannah Dustin would have included a political element as well as war-based crimes, and Victor Rosario would have been both financially and politically motivated. In his case, it appears that the police were under pressure to rule fires as arson to avoid insurance payouts, as well as under pressure to find an offender in the case. You can imagine if you're under the pressure of the insurance companies, to determine arson now because you're saying someone did this on purpose you've got to find that someone right so there's a lot of pressure on the police department in his case to do both those who perpetrate abductions are generally white male between the ages of 30 and 50 they can be withdrawn have little social connections and have good family relationships so sometimes families will be totally shocked that their family member has abducted somebody because there wasn't any sign to them that this could potentially happen. They tend to abduct younger victims, are narcissistic, and enjoy the power of having control over another without being capable of building a relationship with that other person. A paper in Trauma Psychology outlined the timeline of captivity in relation to psychological effects experienced by the victim. The paper classified captivity into three phases, early, medium, and late. And I have a link to that paper in the show notes. So if you're interested in reading a little bit more about this or reading the entire paper, you can go ahead and do that there. So early phase would be in the hours or days following captivity. The victim would be highly anxiety-based, mild feelings of terror, fear, and anxiety to severe hallucinations and dissociations have been experienced. These symptoms fade as the hostage adapts to their new conditions. 
During the early phase, 25% of hostages experience hallucinations during captivity, according to a study by Siegel in 1984. Isolation and fear of death were both present in these circumstances. Hallucinations did not persist post-release and did not imply a thought disorder. Symptoms could worsen for those with previous mental health disorders and a previous psychiatric history resulting in PTSD. Close monitoring was necessary post-release. Self-destructive behaviors have also been present in the early phase. In one case, as outlined in the paper, a 31-year-old Latin middle-class woman had been held captive and blindfolded with no food for seven days. She reported that on the fifth day, she began banging her head on the wall of her small room, which was under the stairs where she was being held. She said this was a result of frustration, rage, and anxiety. And I was actually pretty surprised that 25% of hostages experience hallucinations in captivity. For some reason, that number seemed really high to me. and. Um, Yeah, I was, that was probably the, the most eye-opening of it all of like just how traumatic that can be. It can really trip the brain. So the next phase is the intermediate phase lasting weeks or months into captivity, a continuation and sometimes exacerbation of symptoms and early captivity persist ongoing psychological shock, fear of death, uncontrolled mood swings, grief, and trauma symptoms begin. As new symptoms emerge, the hostage also begins to adapt to the new life. GI distress, difficulty sleeping, pain from injuries, and physical symptoms become more noticeable and problematic. Continued trauma could occur through beatings, threats of death, and mock executions. The hostage may begin to bond or relate to their captor in this time. At one time, this was called Stockholm Syndrome. Given the events of that specific case, a more apt title to this could be Hostage Identification Syndrome. I think to some degree, Abby Hernandez utilized this as a coping mechanism and life-saving measure. As you may recall, in episode 14, Abby began to help her captor make counterfeit bills and went along with whatever he wanted to do. She earned his trust this way. And although he still had complete power over her, allow her allowed her freedoms like reading. Studies contradict the possibility of hostage identification syndrome. An FBI hostage barricade system stated that 92% of kidnappings had no sign of the syndrome. An Italian study from Favro, Decordes, Colombo, and Santanastaso indicated 50% had signs. John Wayne syndrome can also develop. In this syndrome, Feelings of guilt for not having attempted a heroic act to protect others from harm or guilt that they allowed themselves to be kidnapped and thus made their family suffer are prevalent. This mostly occurs in male captives and fades over time. I I think we can say we saw this in the Victor Rosario case. He not only professed guilt for not being able to help the children in the fire, but he also was concerned about the effects of his captivity on his mother in Puerto Rico. There was certainly a fair amount of guilt there that was outside of the situation. Interesting. 
The final phase of captivity is called long-term and lasts months or years into captivity. Psychological effects continue, but a reduction in acute anxiety symptoms is present. These include shock, terror, fear, extreme emotions, despair, depression, anger, and grief. Periods of relative normality, boredom, and tedium increase with the number of challenges the hostage faces. The hostage may also find adaptation and coping strategies to reduce stress and feel some sense of control. Remember, as we talked about, feeling control overall helps with well-being and is a survival mechanism. So we do need that. So, you know, just thinking of this final phase is like, this is a long-term situation at this point with a lot of symptoms are just not great for the body or the mind. Hostages may experience extreme depression, apathy, withdrawal, and suicidal ideation. No matter what the stage, hostages' reactions are as unique as the hostage themselves. Families of the victim are also not spared psychological effects. In fact, the impact can be worse for the family. Family members will show a range of emotion, cognitive and physical reactions, including anxiety, fear, worry, avoidance, and guilt. Shame, anger, sadness, depression, numbness, and self-blame can also be present. Whereas some families become closer due to the situation, fear and blame can cause improper functioning in families as well. Sleep problems can become a major difficulty. Sleep deprivation can cause severe memory impairment, changes in energy levels, mental abilities, mood, fatalism, sadness, stress, and anger. Upon the return of their family members, families could feel negative towards the hostage. Hostages may return to families changed and not be the person they were before they were taken captive. Families may become discouraged when their family member does not, quote, snap back after the event. Health problems can affect families as well. Common issues include headache, head and neck pain, asthma, shortness of breath, weight fluctuations, GI issues, and becoming prone to accidents. So some things to watch for that can be warning signs of significant issues, and this is within families who have had a family member taken captive or abducted, right? These include repeated or unresolving family conflict, family members becoming isolated from one another, children's overdependency and clinging, scapegoating one or more family members, often the children, disciplinary or academic problems in school-aged children, substance abuse, especially excessive alcohol use, violence, including verbal abuse, withdrawal from family interactions, continual tiredness or sleeping for longer than usual or during the day, insomnia, avoidance of normal social situations or family events, and excessive pessimism or cynicism. So obviously all of those things can be a major disturbance for a family who's already had an impact to their family. And so as you can well imagine, just like the captive themselves, the family really would benefit from counseling and support services. And finally, I want to briefly touch on a study by Walter A. London entitled Captivity Psychosis Among POW. 
London discusses prison psychosis versus POW psychosis and how they differentiate. Predominantly, they differentiate as the circumstances are different. Prisoners are often considered a select group of, group of people with antisocial characteristics, whereas a POW is a soldier who is captured by an enemy. The soldier has not committed a crime against society. Often POWs are showered with special privileges upon return. We see this in the cases we studied of Hannah Dustin and Victor Rosario. Although Victor was not actually a criminal, he was treated as such and placed in an institution that holds prisoners captive. Hannah was provided accolades upon her release and privileges through by receiving a bounty. As controversial as she may be today, she was considered a POW who was able to survive and fight her way out of captivity. Upon release, and despite his exoneration, Victor was provided reparations and a sum of money, this being more celebrated than the act of his bravery in 1982 and his efforts surviving prison for 32 years. London acknowledges in his paper that both the POW and prisoner suffer from isolation and the confinement itself. This paper is really quite long. I do have it in the sources if you want to read further into it. We didn't cover a lot of the POW stuff. I feel like with the Hannah Dustin case, there is some POW stuff going on there, war-related crimes going on there, but there was a lot of other factors and situations going on too. So there are a lot of lenses to look through that. But if you were interested in those differences between prisoners, incarcerated prisoners and POWs, what that would, um, what that would look like. So I thank you so much for listening in today. I am on vacation and will return with a new episode and a new topic on Tuesday, July 10th. I hope you all have a wonderful couple of weeks and until next time, be good to one another. Do you love the show? Support Motherhood is Murder on Patreon and get some awesome perks, including a shout out on the show, bonus content, and more. We appreciate the support so much, and it allows me to offer a case to you each and every week. Other ways to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate all the fabulous feedback, and it ensures people will listen and help families who need it most. Motherhood is Murder is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Cation. Music by Alexi Action. Check out the show notes for a list of my sources and ways to support your community.